Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigating the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon. In this episode, we have Ryan Emmons, who is the co-founder and CEO of Waiakea. Waiakea was founded in 2012 as the first Hawaiian volcanic water and triple bottom line premium water of its kind, adapting an unparalleled platform of healthy, sustainable, and ethical and charitable attributes and initiatives. Since their founding, Waiakea has gone from local self-distribution to becoming one of the most awarded and fastest growing premium bottled waters and beverages in the United States. They're now in thousands of stores, have dozens of distributors, and in this episode, we talk about how this all got started, what Ryan and the team have done to grow since, how they really keep that triple bottom line in everything they do, and so much more. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure gave clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado, here is Ryan Emmons, the co-founder and CEO of Waiakea. Ryan, welcome to the show. How's it, guys? How are you, buddy? Good, good, good. Happy to have you on here, man. And man, there's a lot to talk about with Waiakea and this journey of yours in the last eight years of building this company. And I always like to go back to the beginning and give context for people of how this even started. So how did this company start in the first place, Ryan? Yeah, so... um... I was, so I have roots in Hawaii. We, my family, uh, on my mom's side, um, you know, uh, my mom grew up on the North Shore uh, in Kailua um, over on Oahu. And um, both my, uh, my aunt and my uncle married into Native Hawaiian families. And, um, you know, we basically, I had spent all my summers and my winters there. And, uh, you know, I found it funny that, you know, we have this incredible water over there, but, uh, you would see, you know, Fiji water everywhere. And I was really, frankly, extremely disappointed that it just didn't seem like there were a lot of like, um, you know, proud exports that were supporting local communities that were making it to the mainland and actually, you know, being able to, to scale. And Hawaii has really uh, been this import economy, but that's not how it used to be um, when it was a monarchy. And so, you know, we kind of, there were a couple bottled waters that, that existed um, at the time, but, you know, we kind of thought that we could create kind of a new model, um, you know, tapping into at the time, you know, smart water had, had kind of emerged when we started work on this, it was actually yep. 2009. Um, and I was in the entrepreneur program at USC and Marshall, uh, in the Gripe program. 
And when we started looking at this, smart water was the first functional water. You know, it was you know, the first electrolyte um, water mm-hmm. of its kind yep. to kind of hit the map. And um, and we saw that you know we saw that trend, but no one was really addressing a naturally functional product. Um, and I knew through my family source that we had water that was naturally alkaline, electrolyte rich. Um, and um, then we also noticed that everyone was shamelessly greenwashing um, and no one was addressing a lot of the sustainability issues. Um, first and foremost, uh, with regards to uh, packaging and sourcing and uh, ultimately shipping. And so we kind of wanted to set up the first carbon neutral supply chain. Um, we set out to create the first um, bottled water that used 100% upcycled materials, so no virgin plastic. Um, and um, and yeah, we kind of just wanted to do things differently, and we also wanted uh, to be able to create um, you know an initiative that supported local farmers, uh, local community, um, fostered education, uh, and different opportunities, especially in Hilo. Um, which um, has a lot of a lot of needs, um, and uh, and yeah, so you know we kind of obviously that was a long time ago, but that was the idea. <laughs> we wanted to kind of change up the game, and um, you know we basically wanted to be a carbon neutral Fiji, uh, but that was you know American, that was Hawaiian. With all of that, understanding at, at, at that time too, going back to those times, even even back two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, just years ago be- before this even happened. There's so much history that you you have. You mentioned with Hawaii and everything as well. And did you ever think from that that you were going to be an entrepreneur and start a company? Uh, there's a lot to discuss, but I'm just curious on that to start with. Did you think you'd be an entrepreneur at some point? Yeah. So I mean, I knew. So essentially, coming out of high school, I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I think so. I got into a couple different schools back east got to a couple ivies and you know ultimately um usc was one of the few schools that i was looking out out west but not a single one of the schools that i applied for had you know a entrepreneur major or a concentration or a school it was kind of unheard of at the time um and so that really kind of sealed the deal for me um you know i had started a couple like uh, I didn't. I had started this with a couple of friends. This thing called Santa Barbaraopoli. Uh, I'm, you know, from. I'm actually born born and raised from Santa Barbara, but again, I did this kind of switching between Santa Barbara and the North Shore um, every year throughout my entire life. Um, and so we created this game called Santa Barbaraopoli, uh, that was basically a way that um, a bunch of local businesses would basically raise money, pay pay for a space. Um, we raised, um, over $40,000 for Katrina victims. Wow. And, and that was, it was a great way to kind of get that local support, but also get my feet wet with an actual, like, um, physical product. Um, and that kind of sealed the deal for me, man. And I did that when I was a sophomore in high school through junior year. And, um, yeah, so USC was kind of the obvious next next uh, next step for me to kind of figure out, uh, you know, a, a good product um, or a good idea to incubate. Yeah, and having that understanding that you had this idea, then with this water company with Waikia, 
what were some of the first things you did to make this a reality? Because there's, I mean, there's a lot that goes into this. And for people who have an, an idea, there's always like, hey, well, what's the first steps? Like, what should I be doing first? Like, what did you do initially then? You kind of incubated this at USC to start with. Uh, and then after USC, like, what did you do? Did you dive in full time? Yeah. So what, what's nice is that you're going through all these, you know, the entrepreneur program and within the business school at USC, um, you know, super lucky that I, I was on a scholarship and, um, so I was making the most of my time. Um, and you know, I had all these classes that were literally completely relevant to launching a business. And so, you know, yeah. I remember I, I had a feasibility class that I specifically used to see if this kind of, I had an idea, I thought there might be an opportunity within water. Um, I, you know, briefly was going to be a hydrology minor because I have my own interest in water. Um, so we looked, I looked at a, you know, desal plants and looking at updating technologies because there's a lot of issues with them. I looked at a bunch of different things within water, but um, ultimately, you know, um, I thought it was a good fit. And then, you know, the first, the first, the most important thing I would say was that feasibility analysis, which was actually a class for me because I really got to see, okay, what's the market opportunity? Is anyone addressing this need? Um, what are the risks to get to the market? And obviously when you're doing that and you're, you know, 19, uh, years old, <laughs> uh, 20 years old, yeah. um, you don't know jack shit about what actually is going to happen in that industry. This is all from, you know, a lot of research and reports that I had access to through USC, which is better than nothing. Um, but yeah. you know, once I had that and then after that, and I felt good about that and I had a business plan class and, you know, going through all these iterations, um, and finally at the end of it, um, really felt like we had something, we had a product that was differentiated and, and resonant and in a category that was growing. Um, and so then it was kind of off to the races. We graduated early, me and my co-founder, Matt, um, and we, uh, yeah, we started basically trying to figure out the supply chain and, uh, we had our first product, just a first prototype, um, bottle in hand. Uh, in like, I think April of 2012. And then we had our first actual samples and our first sale, uh, in May of 2012. Oh, wow. Who was the first sale to? <laughs> um, so we, we had actually two different points. We had, um, we had a small, a small, just mom and pop shop in, in Hilo, but we also, you know, I was doing things congruently in LA. And so we actually had, uh, CalMart which if you're a USC student, you might be familiar with, um, right by the, um, right by 28th street. Um, and yeah, they agreed to bring it on cause we were students and, um, obviously their number one customer is, you know, students. <laughs> so they gave us a, right. they gave us a break and then, um, yeah. And that kind of slowly started to spitball. And I've actually a bunch of my friends from USC, uh, helped me with distribution. We had little uniforms and, self-distributed in U-Hauls and decided that LA would be a good target market for us to start in. Um, and yeah, so we kind of hit the ground running. With that too, understanding you get your first product in April of 2012, did you have to raise funding for that at the time? Were you able to get a loan, saving? Like what, where, how did you finance the business initially? Because that's obviously a difficult part for a lot of people when starting a company. Yeah. So, I mean, at first, so the whole idea was we eventually wanted to build, we had a tiny little basically shed of a facility where we were, you know, uh, things were 
not very impressive. Um, <laughs> and what we were doing was <laughs> we, with that shed, we were able to get some samples and see how things worked um, over in Hilo. But ultimately, um, you know, we have, we basically developed a, a supply chain where we were, we needed to use a co-packer, which a lot of people do. But we developed the first kind of, we were like, okay, we got to get this product out there. We don't have any money for a facility. Um, you know, let's prove the product, then raise money. Because typically people in bottled water, they develop this fancy facility before they actually have a product that's proven that is differentiated and can sell. It's very backwards. And that's why the failure rate is so high. And so we basically de developed this kind of bulk supply chain and we found a co-packer that was willing to take us on. Um, they didn't have any of the labeling equipment, so we had to get this old shitty labeler and we were basically, they were filling the bottles, but we were basically hand packing. Um, so it would take us like oh, hours wow. to do one pallet. So we were up to like 5 a.m. multiple days. Um, but yeah, that Jeez. enabled us to, without a lot of money, you know, we raised between Matt and my savings and then our family, our first round to get the first products and the molds and everything. I think we raised like $20,000 um, just to like, you know, have a proven product, get an MVP and have a few sales to where we could see how it would compete versus um, versus other brands. Uh, and we financed with that $20,000, obviously we had to finance the uh, little shitty labeler thing that we got. <laughs> um, but financing is, by the way, the key for every entrepreneur. Cash flow is king. So finance yes. everything you possibly fucking can. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man. So that was that was really it. We had, and then you know, when we realized that the product was actually doing uh, better than we thought, and it wasn't just a pipe dream. Um, you know, we were able to get um, convertible debt, basically a, a convertible loan that would convert into equity. Um, and when we did a, an, an actual formal fundraise uh, from our families. Um, so we pulled together um, between Matt and myself. We, we had worked a number of years, so we had a bunch of savings. And then we asked each of our families for, for 50000 Um So we were looking with about 200000 Um And that kind of was really what, what started everything. And, and reading a little bit about the company and, and researching, you went from maybe a couple thousand cases in, in 2012 or so to over like 120,000 by 2015. What led to that growth in those three years? Obviously, it's a lot of time, but what do you think were some of the factors that led to that growth and really why IKEA had just taking off at that point? Yeah. So, I mean, look, we, we built out this live healthy, live sustainably, live ethically brand mantra. Um so I didn't really mention it before, but I was also super involved. I, I mentioned I was interested in hydrology, um, part of that. And obviously, I, I mentioned the, the work with Katrina. So I was super involved in specifically after what I did in, in high school. Um, I went from basically focusing on that Katrina fundraising to um, kind of getting involved in the water NGO world, specifically with a lot of work in Africa. And... So because I felt like we were so lucky to have access to this incredibly sustainable source in Hawaii and all these people, um, you know, and then I looked at my work uh, with the NGO specifically in Malawi, which had the lowest per capita water consumption in the world. Um, and I felt like there was something that we could do there. And so 
that was the other part of the platform is the drink ethically. So every liter that you, you bought, we donated a week's supply of clean water because we were installing and we still do these UN award-winning elephant pumps. Um, and so the differentiated platform of, you know, the naturally functional features, the sustainability features, and then, you know, the kind of Tom's model approach, you know, we wanted to be the only bottled water that people didn't necessarily have to feel guilty about it. And if they had to get a bottle of water, yeah. if they were on it, you know, driving and they needed to go to a convenience store, pick up gas and they were thirsty, didn't have, you know, an algae on hand. We wanted to be that option If they were, you know, if there was a premium water that you had to do. Might as well be one that's supporting local and also supporting people that really fucking need it. Um, yeah. And so, so basically, that platform um, was selling. Um, and even though we were, you know, distributing in those U-Hauls, um, you know, <laughs> we expanded the, that account base um, from one to fifty accounts um, in the downtown downtown LA area. Um, and also, um, in Venice and a little bit in the South Bay. Um, and basically when we got to 50, we, there was this small distributor called Rick's running water. Um, that was, it's kind of a weird name for a beverage distributor that wasn't exclusively focused on water, but you know, Hey, love you, Rick. <laughs> um, <works>. yep. <laughs> Rick. Yeah, you know, Rick distributed a couple other beverages and he had an account base of, you know, probably like 200, 300 accounts. He had like one or two trucks. Um, and, you know, we were like, hey, we'll be out there selling this for you. Um, he, we already have all these accounts. We have this much, uh, this many orders on a weekly basis. Can you help us distribute? Because obviously the U-Haul thing was kind of wearing us thin. Um, and so that's how we got our first distributor. So he signed on, we expanded his business. Um, and then we started, you know, attending a lot of regional trade shows. We originally focused a lot on the natural channel. Um, so a big win for us was, was Whole Foods. Um, more so for the actual brand value of being able to say we're in Whole Foods <laughs> than <laughs> actual sales. You know, you have you have your proving points, and and sometimes um, certain certain partners are, you know, that's an important case study that we can leverage to expand other retail opportunities. Um, well, it lends credibility for sure. I mean, exactly it, for it, sure. It's leverage for everything else, and that really helped us to to kind of expand more in natural, um, which was awesome. And we kept again we those those regional trade shows, fancy food show, um, Expo West. These are huge trade shows where you have hundreds of thousands of people. You have all these buyers. Um, you know, you're you're selling. You're you're getting business cards. You're meeting other brands. You're doing collaborations with other Hawaiian brands. Um, you know, so we basically just kept on scaling that channel, and then we realized really quickly that um, you know there that channel was very very difficult so we started to expand into into other channels and specifically into e-commerce how did you first get into whole foods though I'm curious um so we had done a couple demos and back in the day they had like foragers um that were like would basically forage for local products and we had a forager in hawaii and also one in la that were were basically gave us a shot and we you know, we had sold a bunch of, through a bunch of product at those demos and they allowed us to get into a couple stores. Uh, and then we 
got our first region, which was SoCal, uh, or actually SOPAC, rather, nice. um, which includes Hawaii and SoCal and Arizona and a couple other states. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're going in there, you're trying to show your, um, you know, there's like, you have this basically data, um, it's a very data driven industry, like all of them. And there's syndicated data in natural, it spins data. That's what it's called in other channels as different names. So like in conventional or convenience, you'll have like IRI or Nielsen. You're probably familiar with, you know, Nielsen, uh, in other, in other segments. Um, so yeah, I mean, we realized really quickly that no one really gave a shit about your pitch um, unless you actually had data to back it up. And we had really good data. Yeah. And we got little snippets from from spins. Um, we couldn't afford spins. So, you know, we like basically played with them for samples. Um, and we got them and we used every <laughs> bit of those samples to uh, of that sample data to make sure that um, we would get in. And so, yeah. So we, so that was kind of, that's kind of the process. And it's obviously different. And I talked to, um, uh, Lauren Brill from uh, sweet Lawrence, who also got into whole foods by like just pitching. It's kind of a, a crazy thing. It's different now in 2020, obviously when this is being recorded than, than then, but understanding that side of things, you said you had really good numbers. Like, are they looking at like sales growth and sales? Like which, like what kind of metrics are the, the key things back then at least? Yeah, so I mean, they're looking at your velocities per per the stores that you're in, and they're really looking at like how that is ranking against other products. Um, so for us, we were just really, really focusing on a handful of stores, um, and we were merchandising them. We were going in and, and trying to you know create those relationships and you know get those um, cold box placements, which is you know the dry shelf area of water is like where brands go to die. Like no one goes to the dry shelf water section. You know what I mean? And so yeah. we were like, whatever we do, we have to prioritize the cold box, which is at the front, you know, at the front of the store. Um, right. And so, you know, that's really what we did. And we still did have some success in the dry shelf. If you looked at our numbers versus other brands. Um, but, you know, that it was really looking at those velocities. And yeah, looking at the month over month growth that we had had. And then, you know, it really did come back to, if you have the data, that's one thing, but if you have, if you have an amazing brand and, an, and a differentiated brand that's addressing the same issues that are supposed to be the same issues of Whole Foods, sustainability, natural health and wellness, you know, charity and ethics, like it was really, um, you know, a slam dunk if you have both of those and, and that's, and we did, and that was really a, a big part of our pitch. And from there, you mentioned going from the natural channels, expanding out to different distribution. Like, how did you go from, from that then the natural channels and kind of not saying you tapped out of completely, but what was that plan then from there after you kind of looked at expanding distribution beyond those natural channels as well? Yeah. So, I mean, the natural channel is, uh, is a great channel. We still have a lot more to do in that channel, but we had really limited resources. Um, and so we needed to diversify. Um, what we realized really quickly is that all these other brands that were operating in natural channel, they were really looking at it as more of a branding exercise. So they were doing crazy, they started doing crazy deals and things that we just really couldn't compete with um, because it, it was seen as this emerging category that they wanted to play with. And these are all like, a lot of these were big multinational companies um, like Evian, like Fiji, et cetera. 
Um, yeah. And so it became like increasingly clear, like we could continue to throw way too many resources in this channel, um, have to raise more money because it's not super profitable, or we can, you know, get our feet dirty, go out and see how we perform in other channels and see, you know, just see what's out there. Because, you know, we were just so hyper-focused on natural at that point that, uh, you know, we didn't know, we hadn't done the exercise yet to really see the rest of the market. Um, yeah. And even though we knew it was a big opportunity, we didn't necessarily know, um, you know, how big. And so we ended up falling on, you know, two major channels that we were going to focus on. Three, I guess, if you think about it. Um, so the first two were e-com and food service. Food service was really a branding exercise, but um, the margins were better. Um, and you had the potential if you got, you know, a great um, carry-out salad chain that was trendy, that had 10 stores. They were also growing really quickly, so that 10 stores could be 100 stores, um, you know, within two years. Um, with food service, I guess I would also lump in, like, fitness chains. So we had a number of yoga studios. We still do. Um, that were growing at like kind of a similar rate. So we thought we could kind of get involved early and then kind of scale with them um, to a larger yeah. program. And then the other channels were e-com and then convenience. And convenience for us, um, convenience is not super sexy on, on the West Coast, but we've done really well in places that have kind of more upscale convenience stores. We don't really have those so much in, in California, but uh, you know, we have them in plenty of other places and C-Store represents, you know, 60% or more of the water category in the United States. So it's kind of uh, normally very, very hard to tap into, but I mean, that's where the market potential is. Um, and so, and the other benefit is that, you know, there's limited placements if you can get in um, and you're all in the cold box because there is no dry shelf. So limited facings on the shelf, you have limited brands. So basically it was an opportunity for us where if we got one chain in C-Store and we could basically show, hey, um, you know, if we had a, basically one case study where we could show with, with a limited set of other competitors that are doing right. all things considered the equal amount of promotion, you know, it's a balanced playing field. And we could basically showcase how we were doing, um, you know, removing all those ex external variables, then that would be the platform for us to grow in that channel. And, uh, and that's really what happened. And um, one of our first accounts was is Wawa. And they took a, you know, they took a bet on us because of our differentiated platform. And, you know, we were outselling Evian and, and Boss uh, two and three to one. And, and we still are. And we still are. Um, and so, and Wawa is, if anyone's from back East, they know Wawa has a really loyal following. And if you look at it in the C-Store world, um, we specifically targeted Wawa because they are, you know, the highest profitability per square foot of any other C-Store chain, really well run, very high quality, great, you know, so, cause we were worried that C-Store would, you know, take away from our premium brand, but with Wawa, that wasn't going to be the case. Um, so that was really our way of, of then getting, using that as a, a case study and, and, and continuing that expansion in C-Store. And then e-com, it was really, we knew where things were headed. Obviously, a lot of us in our generation, you know, we've been very much aware of that transition um, versus of people course. that are, you know, 10, 20, 30 years older. 
and specifically, you know, Amazon was just starting to get involved when we had first started way back in the day in food and beverage, but hadn't really taken off. So we originally started doing our own um, Shopify platform um, when Shopify um, was still not necessarily what it is today because that was, we started e-com six years ago. Um, and we basically wanted to own that customer experience. Um, and really just have incredible 24-7 customer service, chat, phone, um, you know, try to, it's just such a, such a great way to incubate new products, to get feedback from your customers. And we knew that Amazon, right. a lot of these other businesses that were dependent on Amazon as their only revenue uh, e-com channel, they just, they didn't have access to so much of that data. Um, and, you know, we have an average, our average customer spends over $600 with us in a given year, which is just absurd when you consider <laughs> the, the next in line is about a third, a third of that, the next wow. uh, uh, bottled water competitor. So, so yeah, those were really the three channels that we focused on and we've kind of continued that focus to this day. Um, now we're obviously focused a little more on starting to get our feet wet in grocery, but yeah. With that too, so one thing I want to go back to, even thinking about what your your entire company is kind of based on, this this quality and like obviously sustainability and everything with with that as well. Were those? Is that, how is that from a cost perspective of making these products, especially early on? I mean, I imagine it was a lot more expensive. I think you talked about one time being like four times more expensive for certain type of processing or uh, manufacturing. Like, how did you get past that that side of things, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, we had to. The reality is, you know. We just were cash flow break even, like literally this year. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, it was a long ride. But the thing is, the reason why, you know, we had success in, you know, raising money and I still own the majority of the company is because we were just hitting inflection points and targets every year and getting better and better and better. Um, really good cash management processes that we had in place. Um, you know, we feel continuously improved a lot of different things through just like executive education and a lot of brands that are growing at the same rate, triple digit growth every year. Um, they're raising four times as much cash as we are and they're still burning through cash um, at that rate. And they might have, you know, significantly less sales. Um, yeah. So I think at first it was an understanding that we had a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but what was also kind of nice is, our product was exceptionally high because we were the first to use 100% um, RPET, 100% upcycled um, bottles. Um, and so we already, like companies can't make that transition to from like virgin bottles to 100% yeah. RPET bottles because the cost is three to four times uh, as much. So like when you're a $100 yeah. million dollar company, $400 million company, um, you know, that's just... For some companies, they would see that as an impossibility. And the benefit of us having all these programs yeah. between the RPET and you know our, our pump aid, pump development, our Google initiative, all these things that are pretty costly, was that we knew that there was there was no way that they were going to get even worse. <laughs> so we kind of could, could improve <laughs> could improve from there. Um, yeah, we're starting and, here. We're gonna we're starting from the bottom here. Now we're gonna improve. <sighs> Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I think there's plenty of education on the way where we also knew talking to plenty of beverage companies and, you know, talking to former, you know, founders or CEOs that were in the water space, 
you know, I knew that it was possible to get to a 50% gross margin. Um, but I also knew that the only way that we could do that was eventually having our own full-scale facility, which we have today. Um, so, I mean, it definitely, you know, we never had a negative gross profit, I'll tell you that much. And there's, you'd be surprised the amount of companies that do. Not a good business model. No, every, every, certainly not. <laughs> every company, this FYI, you should target, if you're in food and beverage, you should really be targeting at least a 40% gross, um, gross profit in order for you to really be a sustainable business um, that's going to be able to kind of also like grow on its own. Um, you know, we didn't need to raise all that money because we weren't burning through all that cash, like I mentioned. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's obviously benefited us now. And that's the only way that I would have been able to maintain my ownership. And that there's something to be said for that too. And and one thing you, you talked about a little while ago is, you know, having your own facility. You needed that to be able to make this happen. Take me through getting in, you know, the investment for the larger plant. At what point were you at when you decided to then take things in house and build the plant you're in now? Yeah. So, I mean, we did it on a shoestring budget at first. So we bought all this used equipment. Um, you know, at the time I was naive and young. I thought I was working with people that knew what they were doing um in, in terms of consultants and we found out after the fact they really had no idea what the fuck they were doing um pardon my language and so that's always a shitty discovery because when you're young and you're learning these things you know so much of that journey is dependent on the learnings of people that have been there before and that just shows like the importance of having a good team and having an experienced team to kind of counteract the naivete and the inexperience of a young founder um I had a great co-founder that really helped me with a lot of the ops. I had an incredible Matt. He had an incredible mind for manufacturing, and he really helped us get over a lot of things. But um, that facility, you know, was just a disaster. I mean, we were probably at fifty percent OEE, just operational efficiency, um, producing like at our max, you know, fifty bottles a minute, um, and you know, really just hemorrhaging money. Um, eventually we, you know, but it also allowed us to survive the crazy growth spurts that we had. Um, so yeah. it was nice owning our own supply chain to that extent, because that's the dangers of, of co-packers, especially when you have, you know, a retailer that's suddenly surging, because if you don't meet those orders, you lose that retailer and you lose that retailer for, you know, at least five years, potentially forever. So there's no, yeah. there's no getting back with some of those retailers if you've been discontinued. Um, so, you know, got us to a certain point and then we just basically found the people that we were really confident that could help us do things right. Um, and also finally got some people in the right places in terms of, um, the operations team. And, um, you know, that really transformed the business. Um, you know, now we can produce that, you know, but depending on the, the product between 120 to 160 bottles a minute. Um, at 90% OEE, which is kind of the gold standard. Um, and uh, and we've just got a great team and we're running multiple shifts and, um, you know, still in the grand scheme of, you know, it cost us a, a few million over the course of a few years. Um, but in the grand scheme of if you were to get a quote from someone to put together the type of facility that has the output and, you know, the systems that we have in place and the automation, they would probably, you know, say it was like the $10 million facility and we've probably put in, you know, three to three to 4 million over the last four years. 
So, I mean, the, the efficiency there, I mean, how have you been able to continually, it seems like, be more efficient with cash, be more, I mean, what is it that's allowed you to do that? I mean, just, you've, you've been forced to, I guess it was part of it, but like, what do you think is it that has allowed you to kind of ex- exceed and succeed in that realm where other companies, you know, hemorrhaging money or spending way more? What is it about? Is it, is it the brand? Like, what what is it about it? I'm curious, Ryan. I mean, I think that part of it is if you've talked to entrepreneurs that feel like they raise too much money and they ultimately own like 1% of their company, um, they all have regret. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was, that was something where I had multiple friends that had been in the same situation that were like, we raised a bunch of money that we didn't need to, um, and we were only focused on the top line and we really didn't care about um, improving gross margin. We didn't have cash conversion cycle management. Um, and so I started putting myself through executive education and my team through, um, through a bunch of different programs. I was a member of EO, um, Entrepreneurs Organization. Uh, they have yep. a program at MIT um, that used to be called Birthing of Giants um, that was just like, you know, I don't know if you've heard of uh, the Rockefeller Habits. Now the book is called Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. I'm a huge student of that book and that methodology. And I just started learning, like, how can I create the best business where revenue aside and brand aside, we would be able to operate it on our own and still sustain those growth rates. And so, you know, looking at extending our cash terms, um, you know, looking at, you know, doing a, you know, if you pay in 10 days, I'll give you a 2% discount um, on invoices. So we're getting that money up front because, you know, coming from Hawaii, that's, you know, our lead times to get a final product ultimately delivered to our customer. That's a big issue. So that's a cash shock yeah. for, you know, 30 to 60 days. So you really have to be mindful of those things. Um, and then, you know, that obviously with that, it's pricing. A lot of our competitors, um, you know, we're doing just unreasonable pricing, um, that was, you know, forcing them to have to raise a bunch of money, um, or go out of business. Yeah. And we really stayed to our philosophy of, you know, a higher price point and really focusing on our social initiatives to justify that price point with our consumer. Um, you know, we might do some bigger promotions, but the general SRP was going to be higher. Um, and I think, you know, all those different things are different levers that are going to allow you to have a, a, a solid business model. Um, but so much of that isn't talked about in any segment. I don't care if you're talking about food and beverage. I don't care if you're talking about tech. So much of it is there's this lure of like raising money, raising money, top line, top line, top line. Um, but I think what's been refreshing to me is, you know, one of the few good things to come out of this fucking COVID era is the focus <laughs> on you know businesses that are profitable that have good business models that actually can scale on their own yeah there's a huge difference i mean it's, it's, you can see a trend towards that way even more recently with 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 venture capital and people 
being almost like a level of accountability of, yeah, you build a profitable business. And it's obviously not going to be just that, but um, there is more and more of that going on. And one of the things I always go back to uh, was Rand Fishkin from the founder of Moz, who now at Spark Toro, new company he founded, and his him talking about the outcomes of, of venture capital and the dynamics of that. And basically at a time when he could have, I think, walked away, with, it was, I wanted to say it was like maybe $10 million. Um, and he said no and raised more money. And then then the way the numbers worked out, he would have had to have such a big valuation for Moz that it, it was almost impossible to hit the same numbers for his personal outcome from that. And that's not really talked about a lot of like, what's the founder outcome eventually going to be? Yeah. And then the core values and the, and the legacy and the control, um, you know, maybe there are things that you had a different image for things and all that goes out of the window. And so, I mean, yeah, that's really my lesson when, when a lot of, you know, younger entrepreneurs come to me and are asking for advice. I mean, that's always the big focus is just how can you maintain your ownership for how long within reason because obviously yeah you know there's depending on your industry um but i mean the vc world is just a, is a gnarly world um <laughs> yeah indeed and one of the things that you mentioned that i actually want to dive into a little bit more is you mentioned going to like the entrepreneurs organization, uh, the MIT's program, like what kind of prompted you to, to go to those programs and kind of seek that additional education? So entrepreneur organization is specifically an organization of other entrepreneurs that are typically, you know, in your local community. So there's, um, there's branches all over the world. Um, and you have certain criteria to get into EO. Um, you have a business that is making, you know, over, a few million in revenue and I was part of a branch in Hawaii. I was also a part of a branch um, in LA and essentially, um, you know, all these people that I was talking to that were in my forum, which is like a smaller group of uh, entrepreneurs that basically meets once a month and mentors each other, huge, just definitely an invaluable resource. But a couple of, of the people, my forum mates had gone into the program and um, said it was just, it had totally changed their business. Um, and I had been, I'm also lucky I have a bunch of mentors that have been preaching, you know, executive education and improvement is something that can keep your business super exciting to you because uh, you're constantly iterating and it, uh, it really forces you to kind of get off your laurels, if you will. Uh, and keep it exciting because there are moments where, you know, let's say you hire an incredible team. So suddenly that day-to-day -day, uh, for you as a CEO is, is you know, it's a lot of that has been taken away from you. So what are the other things that you're able to work on? It's really, you know, that's, it gets me excited. There's so many different things that I can improve on at any given time. So I'm busy as hell. Um, but yeah. I had the right mentor that was really showcasing me that and telling me, you know, when he felt he had gotten stagnant, you know, he had someone that came to him and recommended a program. Um, and so, yeah, I went to that program and um, met a bunch of other entrepreneurs that were, you know, um, in a similar boat. Some of them were totally different um, stages, different types of businesses. You know, I had a guy that was an incredible guy that was, you know, small restaurant owner in uh, in virginia and then in the exact same group with only 50 people in that class i had a guy that you know had just sold the german version of tinder for uh for 300 million dollars um so nice. it was just like this whole different 
you know, plethora of entrepreneurs from different backgrounds, but ultimately all of them were coming together to like learn how to improve their businesses and apply the same techniques for not only their current business, but really any business moving forward. Um, and I mean, that's when everyone around you is talking about all this and it's a multi-year program, um, you know, it gets you excited. You're kind of learning with, from each other and, you know, it was a great program. I highly recommend it. And I highly recommend getting involved in EL. You guys might be familiar with like YPO. YPO is like the sister. YPO and EO came out of the same. Um, they're basically like cousins. Hmm. I've, I've definitely interviewed people on, on both and they both kind of, both sides have, have raved about YPO or EO um, as being just super beneficial to have that network and community and be able to ask those questions and learn and continue to go, you know educate yourself as an entrepreneur, especially as you're building your business. It doesn't stop. I mean, there's so many things to learn constantly, even as, you know, as your business grows and you have other issues, other problems, other things that evolve and um, it's kind of a constant thing. And one of the things I, w- I want to talk on briefly too was just, I had heard in another interview, you'd, you mentioned some of the challenges and obviously it wasn't, wasn't easy to build Yakea over the years. And one of those challenges being like 15 credit cards and just all these different things. Like how have you overcome challenges as, as you've kind of built Yakea? What's kept you going? Um, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I had plenty of credit cards and really bad credit for a long time. <laughs> just a lot of those were maxed out. <laughs> I still actually have that wallet that has all those credit cards. It's on my desk. Oh, um, just as kind of a reminder for like those dark times. Um, yeah. But I mean, what keeps me going, dude, is honestly, I have an incredible team. We have incredible causes. Um, you know, this year we're going to be, I mean, through our work in, in Malawi um, and also through through our work through the Kukulu Initiative. I mean, we're going to be donating hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and through the life of the company, I mean, you know, we're finally, you know, turning the corner this year, but you know, we've you know donated over a million dollars to these different nonprofit partners, um, and I think that keeps me going. And just knowing that we actually have an incredible product that has, you know, since we launched, we have all these different brands that are now adopting, you know, moving away to, from virgin plastic. Um, we have some new innovation with regards to using our existing RPET, but actually converting that into. Um, into a wax that has 1% of the material lifespan of regular plastics, um, but it's still recyclable. Um, it's innovations like that that get me excited. There's so much still to do within this industry. Um, and I think, um, you know, I just all of that kept me going. I just knew what we had and I knew that we could be the innovator in this industry that's really big. Um, and, um, yeah, and I just, I'm a big believer in legacy. Um, you know, my dad taught me that early on. Um, I wasn't trying to make a quick buck, and that's why I wanted to maintain my ownership because I have certain core values and I wanted to see those through. Um, so that's really what keeps me going, man, is just the understanding that we've been able to help a lot of people and I want to continue to scale that. There's a lot more work that we have to do um, because people on the Big Island are really struggling with COVID. Um, so we have a bunch of new farming initiatives. Um, we're going to be introducing a bunch of different crops and products um, on our on our e-commerce platform. Um, and you know, ultimately, scaling a business is fucking awesome. Um, you know, it's going to be <laughs> after my after my children. I just had my first baby. She's four months old, and 
you know, after her and my wife, um, you know, this is going to be why, okay, I'm going to look back and this is going to be like my life's work. So what do you want that to yeah. be? Do you want it to be something you made a bunch of money off of a bunch of people for? Or do you want it to be something where you actually were able to change a lot of people's lives? Um, and I think, you know, that's just it's a different, you know, to each their own, but I feel like it's a higher calling and it's definitely allows you to wake up every day and get actually more excited about what you're doing and your employees too. I have one person in eight years that's actually left on their own accord. Jeez. So like we have like zero turnover, obviously that means we've definitely had to fire people. But I mean, I, I still think that that just shows the the benefits of having a, a, you know, triple bottom line mission aligned brand and company that's innovating. I mean, that's just one of the many, many benefits is, you know, no turnover and I wouldn't have it any other way. Ryan, where can people go to learn more about YIKEA and connect with you if they want to as well? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a store locator online, um, you know, we're distributed in all 50 States. Um, so just check it up, check us out online. We also, you know, have our econ, so, um, you know, you can Google us, you can even get us on Amazon. Um, so just, you know, I would say those are the, the best ways depending on where you are, because then you can just see what's closest to you. Um, but you know, check out our, our stuff on Instagram, uh, Pinterest, um, even TikTok. At Yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. see. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, man. I mean, look, try to support as much as you can. But I really appreciate your time and you having me on. Yes, thank you so much, Ryan. And everyone, I'll link everything in the show notes, just go grind.com slash podcast. Uh, everything we talked about in this episode as well, even like the book recommendation Ryan made previously, uh, and also, also YIKEA website and everything else. But Ryan, yes, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Thanks so much, Justin. Later, bro. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest growing marketing consultancies and their collaborative process, a la carte offering and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.